Welcome to the Complexity Premier Podcast. I'm your co-host, Yingyi and Cheng, Portfolio Management Director at Coolabar Capital. And Yingyi's is joined, as always, by Chris Joy. Uh, I'm a Portfolio Manager, also at Coolabar Capital. Chris, there's been some incredible price action, May. Do you want to talk to us about what's been happening in markets? Yeah, that's right, Yingyi. There has been some pretty extraordinary price action over the last three months, obviously starting with March and then April and May. And it's uh, broadly played out as we had anticipated. So backtracking a little bit, uh, in February, we thought uh, that the unprecedented one in 100 year shock that was COVID-19 would not be able to be priced. Uh, That is to say, a pandemic wouldn't be able to be properly priced by markets. And that would then create a large liquidity and solvency crisis that would necessitate extreme QE support from central banks. And that's what we got in March. A little later than we expected, we thought the central banks would come to the uh, QE party in uh, early March, and it took them uh, until the back end of the month to really unleash uh, their bazookas. QE obviously being asset purchases, so buying government bonds and corporate bonds and uh, securitized portfolios of loans known as uh, RMBS and ABS. And we had argued in March that this would create basically a once in a lifetime investment opportunity. So we spent about $942 million buying assets as the credit spreads on those assets blew to historic wides. The credit spread is simply the risk premium uh, that a company has to pay above cash in order to borrow money. And so we saw in the markets we focus on, which is often bank and corporate paper, we saw major bank hybrid spreads blow from, 273 basis points over the bank bill swap rate, which is a proxy for the cash rate, to 841 basis points over uh, the bank bill swap rate. And then over the course of April and May, we've seen those hybrid spreads compress down to about 380 basis points over uh, bank bills. Uh, One notch up the capital stack, we saw tier two subordinated bonds, their spreads blow from 160 over bank bills pre-COVID-19, to 383 over bank bills. And since that time, they've normalized or mean reverted back to around 220 basis points uh, over bank bills. So there's still a lot of runway in hybrids and in tier two subordinated bonds. Uh, There's a lot of upside return wise, we, we believe. And we might come back and talk about that later. Finally, at the top of the capital stack, we saw major bank senior bonds, their spreads blew from 69 over bank bills to 175 over in March, to as tight as 62 over in uh, in June. Uh, so right now, I today have sold a bunch of paper at 62 over, which is close to an all-time uh, historic tight. In fact, I'm looking at the data here. I think we might have seen a trade at 59, perhaps uh, about 12 months ago. So this tremendous mean reversion seems obvious with the benefit of hindsight. Uh, What we're observing in markets right now is a battle between central bank liquidity and fundamentals. People have been very concerned about, obviously, uh, depressions and uh, protracted recessions and this um, unprecedented and synchronised shock to both economic demand and economic supply. But um, there is a saying, don't fight the Fed, and that has certainly held during this uh, episode. 
So over the course of late February and May, I spent about $942 million buying assets at the wides when I think a lot of folks were pretty petrified, frankly. Um, you know, we saw a lot of selling at the wides and spreads at the worst possible time in mid-March as uh, people were rushing for the exits. And we have taken profits over April, May and June with the same sort of discipline. So we've been very active since the start of January. We've done through to the end of May, uh, we've done about 6,500 trades. And in dollar terms, we had executed over $7 billion of purchases and sales. But because we had very aggressively sold in January, we lost about $417 million of bonds. We sold all of our corporate bonds and then aggressively bought over late February and March, and then have been sellers over April, May, and June. Our net positioning has been pretty flat for the year. So our purchases have almost exactly matched our sales uh, around that $7 billion of trading over the first uh, five months of 2020. What else has been happening in markets? So I guess we could um, also look at our portfolio returns. So May was another really good month for us. The market itself, if we look at the floating rate note index, that had a great month up 32 basis points. The composite bond index, which is a fixed rate index, lagged at 29 basis points. According to FE Fund, Fund Info, cash enhanced funds delivered about 17 basis points. The RBA cash rate did two. The bank bill index did one. In our portfolios, our long short funds did about 172 to 180 basis points in May, so a very strong month. HBRD, the active ETF we run for beta shares, did about 106 basis points uh, net of fees again. Our composite bond strategy uh, was up 98 basis points versus the index's 29. And our cash plus products, uh, smarter money active cash and smarter money higher income, were up uh, about 46 uh, to 49 basis points net of fees. So pretty good outperformance. Over April and May, we've had a bit of a stellar run. So April was actually our best month ever on record. Our long short strategies were up almost 7% net of fees over April and May. So just in those two months, very, very robust returns. HBID is up 4.7% net of fees over those two months. The composite bond strategy we run for instos is up about 3.1% compared to the index's 0.22%. Uh, so massive uh, excess returns there. And our cash plus products are up circa 15 to 1.75% net of fees. Uh, the Osbond FRN index did 1.15% and the FE Fund Info Cash Enhanced Peers did 54 basis points. I should explain that those Cash Enhanced Peers only really relate to the Smarter Money Active Cash and Higher Income strategies. Uh, the other strategies we'll run uh, have obviously different uh, peer cohorts. So really it's all been about this mean reversion in spreads and the once in a generation uh, investment opportunity that we have uh, available to us, uh, particularly in March, but which continues to exist in certain asset classes. We've, uh, and for the avoidance of doubt, I'm talking about uh, mainly in T2 bonds and in hybrids, not so much anymore in senior, but we're also seeing a lot of really interesting new primary supply, so new issues, particularly we bought and traded around uh, senior bond issues from Suncorp, Bank of Queensland, so two AAA rated senior issues. Uh, which performed exceptionally well. And our biggest investment of late has been a Macquarie Bank Tier 2 bond. That was a $750 million issue. It priced at 290 over bank bills. Today, it's been bid at 
about two, I think, 67 over bank bills. So almost 100 basis points of capital gains in a very short period of time on that particular security. Chris, the new Macquarie hybrid listed in June, which seemed to be a great trade. How did it go in your opinion? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I forgot to mention the Macquarie hybrid Yingers. Um, so this is a security called MBLPC. They issued it at 470 basis points above bank bills. We thought that was very cheap at the time. We had fair value around 410 to 420. That implied, according to our modeling, that the security should appreciate in value from $100 to 102.10 to 102.57. And that's exactly where uh, it really traded on the first day. So we saw it close out around 102.60. I think it traded as high as $103. So a really stonking deal for the fixed income market. Again, it's very generously priced. Macquarie, I think, wanted the deal to perform well. And you had about 50 to 60 basis points of a new issue concession, which really supported the secondary market trading and has, I think, given a bit of a fill-up to the overall hybrid market. So we've seen those spreads, as I mentioned earlier, contract from 841 over bank bills, much higher than what we saw in the GFC when five-year major bank hybrids traded it out to about 590 over bank bills to uh, sort of 380 area right now. So what's your view on where the value is in credit markets right now? Yeah, that's an increasingly interesting question, Ying Yi. I've talked a lot about senior tier two and hybrids. Obviously, there's also corporate bonds that are investment grade. There's high yield. Uh, we're negative on both of those sectors. Um, so we have no high yield and we have no corporate bonds at all. So we can talk about that a little later. The two real sweet spots that I see right now are tier two and additional tier one capital hybrids. So if we look at the multiple that you get in credit spread terms on tier two versus major bank senior bonds, historically that multiple has been about 2.1 times. And right now that multiple is around 3.4 times. Indeed, that multiple is basically at the highest level it's ever been since 2008. So we think tier two is a very, very good opportunity, even though we'll probably get some supply. And I think that supply will create opportunities. The other area is obviously the hybrid market where the historic multiple that you get on hybrid spreads over major bank senior bond spreads, like for likes to five-year tenor uh, major hybrid securities and senior bonds has been about 3.9 times. So that's the multiple that you'll capture, whereas right now the multiple is around 5.5 times. It's on par with what we last saw in 2015 slash early 2016. And aside from that event, hybrids have never been more attractive. Obviously, the banks have been deferring dividends and they've been building up their common equity tier one capital buffers, which is a huge positive for hybrids because the risk with the hybrid is that the bank suffers losses and their equity buffer compresses from circa 11% today to five and one eighth percent and at that level, the hybrids automatically convert into bank shares. So the bigger that buffer, the better it is for hybrids. And by not paying dividends or cutting dividends, banks are quite expressly protecting hybrids. Aussie banks have always paid their hybrid coupons and they've been repaying the securities or repurchasing the securities that are outstanding. I think we saw Macquarie and NAB repay about $2.2, $2.1 billion of hybrids in Q1 and Q2 of this year. They also cancelled $2.6 billion of new hybrid issues in March because the spreads were too tight and wouldn't, would not have been a good enough deal for investors. 
BOQ and Suncorp, some smaller ADIs or banks. They've also repaid about $340 million of hybrids. And all of this has been with APRA's approval. So whilst APRA is saying, we want you to defer or reduce your dividends, APRA is giving the banks its blessing for them to repay their hybrids, even when they're not replacing them with uh, new securities. So yeah, I think that's a, um, a really interesting opportunity. The question is where do spreads go to? So we do a lot of modeling on this. And I think that major bank five-year T2 bond spreads can go back to the 150 basis point level over bank bills. That's kind of near where they were pre-COVID. So right now they're at about 220. So a lot of runway there, 70 basis points of spread compression. I think major bank hybrids that are investment grades are triple B minus rated. The T2 bonds are triple B plus rated. I think their spreads can initially go back to pre-COVID levels around 270 area. I think ultimately they can test the low 200s where they've been on several occasions in the post-GFC period. When we model the probability of default and when we model the expected recovery rate, which we assume is a 0% recovery rate, so a 100% loss in default on these two types of security, so T2 subordinated bonds and hybrids, we require as a minimum a return for T2 of about 120 to 130 over bank bills. And that's without any liquidity risk premium. And for 81, we really require around 185 over bank bills. This is specifically for CBA securities. I'm looking at a, um, uh, some analysis we have on this. So you know, in total return terms, you're still looking at 10% plus potential forward-looking 12-month returns in the hybrid market and 6 to 8% in the tier two market, depending on the specific securities that we're talking about. I would emphasize, as always, please listen to that disclaimer. This is not personal financial advice and the usual caveats like past performance is not a guide to future returns and you know, forward-looking statements should not be relied upon and are based on assumptions that are subject to change. Sorry, guys, for that disclaimer. Uh, but yeah, that's that's probably, I think they're the two markets I'm interested in right now. I will say that the major bank securities in foreign currencies also look very attractive. So their senior and subordinated bonds in US dollars and euros have been quite appealing. And we've had exposures to those markets and we hedge them back to Aussie dollars. And we also hedge out the interest rate risk. And Chris, no doubt there's been some concern about second waves with respect to COVID. What has the data science team's modelling shown us about this risk? Well, for um, those who have listened into our webinars where we actually show our COVID-19 tracking systems live, so we screen share the systems and also our investment systems live, you will have seen all of the charts that I'm kind of verbally describing now. But we track, as I mentioned earlier, every fatality and infection globally. And we also forecast the infection curves for every country globally. And what we see globally is multiple waves. So there was a first wave with China, then a second wave with uh, Europe and North America, and then a third wave we're now getting with the developing world. And so I think you'll still continue to see uh, waves of infections as COVID you know, spreads through Africa, South America, you know, maritime Southeast Asia, and Eastern Europe. What we are seeing in our systems is that where developed countries, like particularly Australia, South Korea, Japan, Hong Kong, Taiwan, China, the UK, France, Germany, Italy, have been able to really flatten their curves so that they've been able to really um, reduce the number of new infections to a negligible level. We are seeing when we real-time track Africa, Brazil, Eastern Europe, 
Russia, India, Maritime, Southeast Asia, and South America, ex-Brazil, these countries are having big problems containing and crushing their curves. So while they look like they've passed through their peak in new infections, they're still getting significant volumes of infections, and they have not been at all effective in suppressing or eradicating the virus. And perhaps the best hope in these markets is that we get vaccines, which we expect. Our central cases will get a vaccine within the first 12 months, earlier than people expected, We've always argued this, and I think that kind of holds out hope for the developing world. We are not expecting second waves within countries that have already successfully crushed their curve. The change in human behaviours, the massive ramp up in testing technology, the new therapeutics or antiviral treatments are now available, coupled with relatively non-porous borders. I think augurs well for countries controlling their outbreaks. Chris, you've warned investors about the risk of triple B corporate bond downgrades and increasing high yield defaults. What's the latest on this front? Yeah, we continue to see record volumes of triple B corporate bonds that are on watch or outlook for a downgrade to high yield. So about 1.2 trillion US dollars worth. That's an absolute record, much higher than anything we've seen uh, previously. And we're also seeing a very large spike in high yield defaults, uh, which are now the highest we've seen since 2008. So we've seen retailers drop like flies, groups like JCPenney, J.Crew, uh, we've seen Virgin Airlines blow up, um, really savage defaults, and we continue to think there'll be lots of vulnerabilities in affected sectors, tourism, travel, bricks and mortar retail, uh, and then of course, commercial property office and retail specifically is an unmitigated disaster. So it's a disaster if you own commercial property and obviously if you're investing in bonds issued by uh, commercial property trusts or REITs. We are also seeing a lot of stress in securitized subprime home loans and securitized subprime SME loans and securitized consumer receivables and personal loans. So there are many markets that are subject to stress right now, and I think that's going to continue for a while. And that's why we are very much focusing our portfolios on government-guaranteed businesses like banks. Chris, there's also a lot of talk about the housing market in Australia dropping 10 20 or 30%. Have your views changed on this topic? No, not at all. It's playing out as we projected. So prices rose nationally in Australia in January, February, March and April. There was a tiny 0.2% seasonally adjusted drop in May. It still looks like it'll be uh, soggy. So I think prices may be off a little in June. But our central case in February was that prices would flatline to fall by at most 5%. And I think that remains very much the case. We are seeing a rebound in activity uh, auction clearance rates have jumped back up to 60 and 70% in East Coast markets. We are not seeing much in the way of new listings, so the supply side is not swamping the market. On the other hand, groups like realestate.com are publishing data showing that there is a very strong increase in buy demand. So they actually have a buy demand index that they publish, which is way above average. So I'm actually very positive on the housing market. I think it needs to tread water for a while whilst 
activity normalizes, but there's been a huge increase in buyer purchasing power from a reduction in mortgage rates by about 75 to 150 basis points since mid last year. And also through more relaxed serviceability standards that are being applied by the banks, they've uh, reduced the maximum interest rate that they assume you have to service uh, when they run their serviceability tests. And Chris, Corba has done enormous due diligence on the risk of a cold war with China. Where's your head on this subject right now? Yeah, Yingyi, uh, this is obviously a key focus of ours. We've actually hired six different China advisors over the last few months. I've published three AFR columns on China-US relations and what it means for Australia and portfolios. And we have been very intently focused on this. And since we started talking about Cold War 2.0, we've seen a progressive increase in frictions between China and the rest of the world. We've obviously got a live uh, conflict on the border between China and India. We've had Chinese Coast Guard vessels ramming Vietnamese fishermen. Uh, Obviously, in the China-India border dispute, there were 20 Indian casualties and reportedly 43 Chinese casualties. We've seen the Chinese launch a vast unrestricted cyber attack on Australia across all levels of government, industry and business. We have seen a progressive increase in the anti-China rhetoric emanating from the US. We have seen the Chinese impose their new national security laws on Hong Kong, which we believe will result in a massive flight of people and capital out of both Hong Kong and mainland China to places like Singapore and Australia. At the same time, commodity prices remain very high, and obviously China is priming its fiscal pump, ramping up fixed capital investment, and Australia is a short-term beneficiary of that through our trade surplus with China. We've also built internally through our 24-person team and and our data science cell, we have built real-time graphical user interfaces that track global trade flows between China and every country in the world. And you can see some of that analysis over at Livewire. In fact, most of my AFR columns can be read partially for free at Livewire. And you can see screenshots from those systems. And we're definitely seeing quite sustained decoupling between the US and China as the US shifts to other low-cost producers, and in particular to places like uh, Mexico and Canada. We think that this um, withdrawal of supply chains from China will also be accelerated by the advent of greater automation, robotics, and the application of artificial intelligence. We've also seen, uh, since we started writing about this a couple of months ago, news that for the first time the UK will be banning Huawei from their 5G network, and it looks like the Canadians are doing likewise. And we hypothesize that basically we will see secular deglobalization as the world splits into two major trading blocks or regimes, a Sino-led block encompassing China, the Belt and Road countries and nations in Southeast Asia and Eastern Europe and Africa, and a Western liberal democratic order, obviously involving the Five Eyes countries and various European nations. It will be interesting to see what happens with Russia. It's clear that the Americans are trying to drive a wedge between Russia and China, inviting Russia to attend a G7 meeting, for example. Yes, this is just a major thematic that we are analytically and from a uh, quant and 
conventional research perspective, very, very heavily engaged in. And we think it throws up both opportunities and threats for portfolio construction. We think the probabilities of major power conflict are much higher than they have been in the past. And we've argued for the best part of a decade that the probabilities of major power conflict are greater than people uh, assume. You know, listeners might be aware that I used to write extensively on national security. And for the AFR, I've interviewed the head of the CIA, the head of the NSA in the US, the head of ASIO here in Australia, and the head of the uh, Australian Signals Directorate, which is the NSA's equivalent. Again, you can see all this stuff on LiveWire. So without kind of going through a long soliloquy, I think it's best maybe we draw a line in the sand there, Ying Yi, and refer readers to my LiveWire account. So if you Google Christopher Joy LiveWire, you can see those articles for free. You just have to log in. Thanks, Chris. And that's a wrap, guys. Please listen to the disclaimer and hope you have a good week. This podcast does not provide financial advice. It is not an invitation to invest in any financial product and the information in it should not be relied on for any decisions. All views expressed represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or a recommendation and should not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit the moneysmart.gov.au website to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.